0: A patched up podcast could ruin your business. Let us do the technical busy work behind the scenes while you share your genius on the mic and take the industry stage. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. Hey everyone, Saul Marquez here and welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Aisha Akhtar. She's a double board-certified neurologist and preventive medicine specialist with a background in public health and is a U.S. veteran. Previously, she served as deputy director of the U.S. Army Traumatic Brain Injury Program, developing the Army's brain injury prevention and treatment strategies for soldiers. As a commander in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, Dr. Akhtar frequently deployed to assist with national public health emergencies. For a decade, Aisha was a medical officer at the Food and Drug Administration, most recently in the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats, implementing studies on vaccine effectiveness and safety, and using her top-secret security clearance to develop national preparedness strategies for public health threats. She's published in peer-reviewed journals, including Lancet, Pediatrics, Journal of Public Health Policy, and Reviews in the Neurosciences. Dr. Akhtar is a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. She's the author of two books, Our Symphony with Animals on Health, Empathy, and Our Shared Destinies and Animals in Public Health, which argues for the need for the health institutions to include animals as part of the public in public health. She's also a TEDx speaker and just really privileged to have her here to talk to us about the work that she's up to at the Center for Contemporary Sciences. So so with that intro, Dr. Oktar, super, super grateful that uh, you're able to join us today.
1: Thanks so much, Saul. I'm excited to be here.
0: Absolutely. So before we we dive into the work that you guys are doing at the Center for Contemporary Sciences, tell us about you. I mean, the, the work that you've done for our country and our soldiers is just incredible. Talk to us about what, what lights your fire in healthcare.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny how your career takes you into directions you would never have thought of. So I was working at the Food and Drug Administration doing some vaccine studies um, at the time. And I learned about this thing called the Public Health Service Commission Corps. Mm -hmm. And i had never heard of it before. But basically, it's one of the uniform services. It's the arm that goes out to we get deployed. So we're doctors, scientists, epidemiologists, nurses, other healthcare workers who get deployed to assist with public health emergencies mm-hmm. like the pandemic we're currently facing. Yeah. So I've helped with Ebola screening, with post-recovery after flooding in Louisiana, as well as some other things. So yeah, this is I'm not in it anymore because because I retired from the service in the Army or separated, but yeah, this is what we were doing. And I assume the public health service folks are very much involved with the pandemic response currently. And then after the my work at the Food and Drug Administration, after I was working in the Office of Counterterrorism and, and Emerging Threats, we, we were actually preparing for pandemics like this, preparing for emerging infectious diseases as well as biological threats that could be as a result of terrorist acts. But after working in that department, then I, I moved on to the Army and I was um, helping to develop clinical guidelines for how to prevent how to screen, how to detect, and then how to treat soldiers with traumatic head injury. And, you know, um, your listeners may be aware that traumatic head injury has been getting a lot of attention over the last few years among soldiers, and it was under-recognized. And there's so many causes of traumatic head injury that include more than just direct impact from an object, for example, but even there's a head injury that can result from use of heavy weapons that cause, uh, you know, this, this recoil, for example, and, and, okay. and so on. So that's there isn't much hmm. we can offer, unfortunately, for soldiers or for anyone with traumatic head injury. And that's really the case with most neurological diseases. We, there isn't much. I mean, you, we can offer supportive care, but we don't have anything or very little in the way of actually uh, therapeutic care, care, um, medical, drugs, and other therapeutics that can actually directly impact the disease. And that's part of the reason why I'm currently now heading out the Center for Contemporary Sciences, because we've seen that there's been a real Problem in a sense, with how medical research is conducted in many ways, and that there is a need for a real uh, change in in the procedure
0: well, you know there is a huge opportunity there, and it's unfortunate that there's nothing that could be done at this point therapeutically, so you know it's a really an interesting Dilemma that we're in, and and I'd love to hear more about what you guys are doing at the center to help with some of those challenges, Dr. Doctor. Can you tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing?
1: Yeah. So throughout my career, I started to become more aware of one of the main, I would say, main limitations, one of the main holdbacks in medical research, and that's really the continued use of animals in experimentation to try to inform human health and and human care and pharmaceutical development and I started to question that use for a long time and now more and more scientists are starting to question the use of animals as well. There's more data that's being published much more frequently now in peer-reviewed scientific journals that are really calling into question this, this kind of system that we've developed that really heavily uses animals. And what the data is starting to show more and more is despite the similarities between humans and other animals and many basic biological processes. It's the differences between species that are causing a lot of problems, and what we're finding is that the use of animals in general—it's not to say it's never worth—but in general, is largely ineffective in predicting what we're going to see in humans. Largely ineffective in helping us understand human diseases and in developing pharmaceutical agents. If you look at the FDA's own statistics, is that between ninety to ninety-five percent of the drugs that pass preclinical tests, end up failing when tried in humans. So what that means is that 90 to 95% of the drugs that were found to be safe and effective in animal tests end up failing in humans and most fail Hmm. because they end up being unsafe and or ineffective in humans. And so there is, it's a huge number, right? Can you imagine? You know, imagine if you were, on, on a, were hopping on a plane and the pilot said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have about a 5% chance of landing safely at our destination. <laughs>
0: Get me off this plane. <laughs>
1: exactly. And you would demand an overhaul of the entire airline industry. But this acceptance, this dismal failure rate mm. in our, you know, the development of our drugs that we put into our own bodies has just been, you know, been going on for decades. And so there is a drastic need for a change. And at the Center for Contemporary Sciences, this is really our, our goal is to truly help transform the medical sciences to move away from the use of animals and to actually embrace the use of these cutting edge, really innovative, exciting, new testing methods that are based on human biology.
0: Well, I think that's uh, phenomenal. And so what is the alternative then? You know, what things can we do, or can we start thinking about?
1: Right. So, one of the testing methods that's really just been gathering a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of excitement is the organ-on-a-chip methodology. Mm. And so, basically, with an organ-on-a-chip, what you do is you distill an organ, let's say a lung, into its micro components onto a microchip, and at the micro levels, where everything happens anyway, that's where disease takes place. You know that at the molecular level and the micro levels, disease takes place where a drug is works or doesn't work, or a drug causes um, toxic effects. And so, if you look at a lung on a chip, for example. It mm-hmm. actually breathes, it functions like a full living lung really? on a chip or close to a living, mm-hmm. full living lung. Let, I, I won't say it's exactly like a full lung. Sure. Um, and there's always room for improvement and, and improvement is constantly happening. And so there's so many companies out there and academic institutions now are jumping on board with creating these organs on a chip. So there's a lung on a chip, a kidney on a chip, a gut on a chip, a mini human brain on a chip, you know, a liver on a chip and so on. And ultimately what these innovators hope to do is connect all the different organs on a chip with a lymphatic system, a circulatory system, kind of a nervous system and so on to create the human body on a chip, which is, is so exciting. It's just one of the most exciting developments that's happened in a long time.
0: That is so interesting. I- I've never heard of this before and I'm so intrigued. So talk to us about the chip and, you know, does it contain, tell us what the contents of this chip are and how it actually works.
1: So I, I wish I could give you all the full details because <laughs> that's not, I haven't, we don't create these chips. Okay. We're helping those who create these chips. But gotcha. um, the, basically they, they're derived from human cells or human mm-hmm. lung cells, for example, that have been, that are placed in a kind of medium that allows for their growth and, and their longevity as much as possible. Now, there's always room, There there's continual refinement of the medium to make it as faithful to an actual living biological system, the living human biological system as possible. So these these chips are not perfect by any means. Sure, sure. But sure. these are just one one type of testing method. There are also many organs now that are being grown, and many of them are being produced through three D printing now, which is just amazing. It is. So you've got these mini organs again, like mini brain, human brains, and you know these are not conscious brains. These are just miniature versions of brains, mini mini brains, mini hearts, and so on. And so again, you know, there's a lot of activity going on in that place. So the, the thing to really emphasize is that there's no, no one testing method is going to give us all the answers we need. Mm-hmm. No one testing method is, is ever going to be perfect, but it's going to take a, a combination of multiple testing methods. So let's say organs on a chip, maybe mini organs, other types of cell cultures, bioinformatics, right? Computer in silico modeling and then pathology results and autopsy results and imaging results, and then ultimately clinical trials that will really give us the best, the most faithful information about what's happening in the human body. And so this is really the direction we need to go. When you think about it, right? So we know now, and this has been coming up a lot with the COVID vaccine testing. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a reason why we say we need to have a diverse group of people represented in clinical trials, right? Because we know that what may be safe and effective in you, Saul, may not be safe or effective in me Mm -hmm. or my husband or a child or a nursing, you know, a pregnant woman, for example, or, you know, someone from Asian heritage, for example, and so on. We know that no one human can predict what we're going to see in another human, right? Right. And that's the reason for the call for diversity in clinical trials. So when you think about it, how can we expect a mouse, a mouse's biology to predict what we're going to see in humans or even a non-human primate? If we look at um, the use of non-human primates, for example, there have been more than 90 vaccines. You know, I don't know if you know about the attempt to find HIV vaccines. There's been for decades attempts to find a vaccine to help prevent HIV, to protect people from contracting HIV. Mm-hmm. So billions of dollars have poured into this line of work. Decades of time, lots of non-human primates have been used. And until recently, um, many of those studies included chimpanzees, our closest relatives, right?
0: right?
1: You would think that at least chimpanzees and non-human primates would be good models for human diseases. But despite that, more than about 90 HIV vaccines that have passed those past testing on non-human primates ended up, all of, every single one of them ended up failing in human clinical trials, every single one. And to go further, some of them were found to even increase the risk of HIV in humans. Wow. So it's just some examples of just how interspecies differences can really lead us down the wrong line of investigation.
0: Well, you're really bringing a topic, especially now when we're dealing with, you know, coronavirus and vaccination and and how are we getting to the endpoint and Just something that we all need to be thinking about further. And I guess you you think about these things, Aisha. It's like this is one of these things that I guess has gone unquestioned for a long time. So I think it's really interesting and important that you guys are are doing the questioning on how we do it because sure, you can't expect everything to be accurate, but it's gotta be better than a 95% failure rate.
1: Right. Uh, And thank you for those kind words. Unfortunately, we're not the only ones. So there are many more scientists who are now jumping on board and saying that we need something better. We need to, to have testing methods that are based on human biology. So what we are doing at the Center for Contemporary Sciences is helping these innovators who are creating these new techniques. We are trying to increase scientific and public knowledge about these new techniques and how they can be used instead of animals, to really accelerate our understanding of human diseases, or to really accelerate the development of better treatments. And we see our our role as bridge builders really Mm -hmm. to to bring a lot of different groups together to build collaboration so that these tools are not only being developed and not only get the investment and the funding they need, but they're actually getting into the hands of the researchers who can use them. And that our governmental agencies are putting more effort into further developing, further refining, and further funding of these tools.
0: Wonderful. Just super important work that you and your team are up to there in enabling this type of progress. And and so does anything come to mind when you think about some maybe improvement of outcomes? And maybe it's in the future and the question will be more around like, where do you see this going?
1: I think this is going to be the future of biomedical research. Actually, I I know this will be the future of biomedical research. Animals won't be used, and instead we will have testing methods that are based on human biology. It makes a lot of sense. These testing methods can be a lot cheaper. Initially, there may be a cost to switch over, but over time, they will be a lot cheaper to use. They can be used much more efficiently, much faster, and so on. We don't have outcomes in the sense that you're looking for yet, uh, as you said, because this is still a relatively new field um, when you look at the history of biomedical research. There have been side-by-side comparisons of different types of testing methods, different in vitro tests or, or batteries of in vitro tests compared with the animal test, for example, to look at a toxicity of a particular compound or so on. And so there are studies that have looked, compared, which is better, you know, looked at these two different methods and and looked at which is better. Is Mm -hmm. it the animal test or is it the in vitro test? Almost inevitably, it turns out that the in vitro tests tend to be better, but there are not a lot of studies in that area. Or if there are, a lot of them still are proprietary studies that are held closely by the pharmaceutical agents and the contract research organizations. So they're not published. Mm-hmm. And as you know, in the medical world, a lot of things go unpublished and right. that that's not a good thing either.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. There's a gap there. And and I mean, is there any word on the margin of improvement one versus the other or?
1: See, <laughs> The word on the street, I would say, is <laughs> yeah. that like these organs on the chip are ending up being much more effective. And there's a, even my, my office at the Food and Drug Administration, mm-hmm. when I was there in the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats, we gave millions of dollars to contract out for the use of the lung and the liver on the chip. I believe it was the liver on the chip as well, to be used because we knew that the animal tests were not sufficient in predicting the toxicity of different drugs. So we knew there was a way, there was a need to move into a different direction. I wasn't there, unfortunately, to see the final analysis. So Mm. that that I don't have. But this is something that we are looking into, and we hope to find data that looks at more of these outcomes that we can actually publish on our website.
0: Well, I think it's great, exciting to think about the promise of this work. As you think about what you're most excited about in the work that you guys are up to, what would that be?
1: You know, I as a neurologist, I can't tell you how me, how miserable it is to tell a patient that you have Parkinson's disease mm-hmm. or your mom has Alzheimer's disease or to diagnose some young person with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease mm. because I know that there's almost nothing that we can offer to those patients. They're horrible diseases to be diagnosed with. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy they're just truly horrible diseases to live with, and we have nothing. And so I'm so excited about the possibility that one day I can offer patients something. Two of the workshops that we're going to be initiating this summer through the Center for Contemporary Sciences, one is to look at Parkinson's disease, and the other is to look at Alzheimer's disease. And we're gathering a group of experts. To really look at how can we use these new technologies to really accelerate the understanding of those diseases and then ultimately drug development and to create actionable word uh, roadmaps for the larger biomedical community to follow. And so we're really excited about that and the impact it can have in those diseases. We're also going to be having one on vaccine efficacy studies, which of course is very timely with the pandemic. So I'm, I'm very excited about the possibility that one day, We can tell patients who have neurological diseases that we actually do have something we can offer. Mm. And there's something that can truly significantly improve your lives and maybe even cure the diseases you
0: have. Well, that, Dr. Akhtar, is a feature that all of us could certainly uh, (laughs) subscribe to. And so, you know, your, your organization does great work. It is a nonprofit. And so there's opportunities for those interested to help with the mission. What's the best place for them to do that? And where can they learn more and how they can help?
1: Yes, we welcome help. Obviously, as you said, we're a nonprofit. So we welcome financial contributions and we welcome the opportunity to form partnerships with other scientific institutions, with investors, with funders who want to learn more about these new tools that they may be interested in funding. So our website is contemporarysciences.org, or you can look up Center for Contemporary Sciences as the full name of our organization.
0: Fantastic. There's a lot of different links and ways for you to learn how you can collaborate, contribute to the fantastic work that Dr. Akhtar and her team are up to over there. What would you leave us with here, Aisha, as far as things to be thinking about as we close today's podcast?
1: I would say that we are looking for anyone who has a fresh new approach to biomedical research. You know, we would love to hear from you. If you have a new approach that, again, is based on human biology, if you have a new idea, please reach out to us. We would love to hear about this idea. We would love to try to collaborate with you and work with you. I think the, you know, again, the sky's the limit here as far as the possibilities in testing methods that could be developed. And so we're very excited about what's ahead in, the, in our near future.
0: Well, we thank you for the work you're doing and, and uh, certainly the, the promise that it holds for all of our future. And listeners, you know, just uh, if you found inspiration in today's episode with Dr. Akhtar, take action. Don't just think about it. Reach out, learn more figure out ways that you could do your part to further the mission so said, thank you so much. This has been super interesting and we're rooting for you guys.
1: Thank you so much, Saul. It was great being here.
0: Hey everyone, Saul Marquez here. Have you launched your podcast already and discovered what a pain it could be to keep up with editing, production, show notes, transcripts, and operations? What if you could turn over the keys to your podcast busy work while you do the fun stuff like expanding your network and taking the industry stage? Let us edit your first episode for free so you can experience the freedom. Visit smoothpodcasting.com to learn more. That's smoothpodcasting.com to learn more.